صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند باليستاين ريمبرد وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Nasa. Good morning, listeners. I'm excited. We have a very bubbly guest today, and I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. How are you? Rob, we've got one of your dear friends from your US trip of 2016 or 17, Layla D, who's an activist and a teacher and a fantastic Palestinian woman joining us today. Hi, Layla. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Layla, it's our honour to have you. Good morning, good evening. Before we start, we always like to ask our guests about their own Palestine story, their Nakba story, how they ended up where they ended up. But before that, it's really important for our listeners to know that you're actually one of our international fans. Yes. It's very important. So I listen to you via podcast on my phone. I take a lot of long drives. I live out here in California and... Um, you know, there's a lot of driving involved. And I listened to all of them. And, and I was telling you earlier that for the first time, I could hear my own people speak and I could relate to somebody. And each person's story would give me the chills because I didn't realize that I had so much in common with my fellow Palestinian comrades. So I enjoy it very much. Brilliant, brilliant, Mayla. So tell us your Nakba story. How did you end up in the United States? So I was born here, but my Nakba story actually starts from uh, my Nexa story, which means the setback. Uh, my parents were both born uh, before 1948, so they had experienced that occupation war before when they were young. And then 1967 was when they really got to experience firsthand what the brutal occupation is about. And my parents are from Jerusalem and I consider myself from Jerusalem, even though I wasn't born there, but they were married and they gave birth to my brother in June 2nd, 1967, three days before the war. And uh, my mother grew up always telling me her story And it's something that I knew as a child. And she talks about it till this day, the trauma that she experienced. Although, you know, what's funny is sometimes she talks about it almost from a traumatic experience. And sometimes she talks about it as a matter of fact. My dad, when he talks about it, which he rarely does, he usually speaks in a way, in a tone that it's like a oh, matter of fact, this is what happened. This is our story. So my mother just gave birth to my brother in 1967 in June 2nd. And then three days later, the Six-Day War broke out. And what happened was I'm from the village of Beth Hanina, which is about three kilometers. It's a suburb of Jerusalem, three kilometers from the old city. 
And the Zionists came in and took my grandfather's house and made it into a fort. And what they did at first was they forced all the men. This is something that they commonly did. They forced all the men in the village out and made them stand. And oftentimes they would shoot them dead. So you can see that they would be in so much fear because this has happened before in other villages and everyone knew about Deir and what happened. And so that was still prevalent in everyone's mind. And uh, my father being one of them. But what they ended up doing is the Zionists ended up telling everyone, go to a Hassan about, you know, the king of Jordan. In other words, they were forcing everyone in the village to go to Jordan. But for whatever reason, that didn't happen. And everyone in the village ended up camping outside somewhere in the hills going towards north, going towards uh, Ramallah. But they didn't settle there. They basically camped out in a, an area called Atarot for two weeks. And if you can imagine, my mother just gave birth. Um, she was so scared that she wasn't even, she couldn't even, you know, breastfeed my brother. You know, she wasn't making any food for him. And, but before that happened, my grandfather tried to tell the Israelis, he asked them if she can stay because she just gave birth. And what they told him was, she can stay as long as she stays with you. But my father had to go. But my mother refused. She said, if we die, we both die together. And so she refused to stay behind and went with my father. She was so scared. She said that she walked barefoot for miles and wrapped my brother up so tightly that she almost lost him. Uh, once they camped, they found the place and they got tired of walking. She realized that she was only holding my brother's feet. She didn't realize, she almost dropped him because she wrapped him so tightly, you know, because she was scared. Um, and she said that there were women. I know a lady from my village who, you know, actually lost her baby that way, thinking that she had her child in her hand. And when she got to a place to settle in, uh, she realized that she lost her baby and it died. And so this happens, this happened to many Palestinians. There are many stories I found in, in other villages that this happened to. Um, so what they did was when they got there, Again, they separated the men from the women um, and they would have them kneel on their knees and just have them zip tied and sit there all day in the sun just for no reason. And of course, they didn't know what was going to happen. It was just uncertainty and, you know, it was just day by day. But what my mother said is every time she tried to feed my brother, my father would light a match and they would start shooting. 
So they didn't want anybody to turn any fires on because they were outside, you know, camping, wherever. And so that was the case with them. Uh, I asked my mother, how did you guys eat? And she said, we barely ate. Um, old women would go and ask if they can go back and get food and they would try to grab food from wherever they can. Some tea, some bread, whatever they could find to eat, but they barely had any food to eat. Um, my uncle was also, he was shot at and his friend died. So he had to witness his friend die and his other friend was wounded. So they were like basically tortured and terrorized after kicking everyone out of my village. By the time they were allowed to go back two weeks later, the village was looted. The village supermarket, little store, grocery store, everything was looted. And my grandfather's house, which is where my mother and my aunts and uncles lived, it was a big house. That's why they used it as a fort because it was tall and, and you can see Jerusalem. Uh, you could see so much of, you could even see all the way to Ramallah from my grandfather's house. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful view. My mother found that the house was looted. Everything was stolen. My brother's clothes that she ironed and prepared were defecated on and used to wipe themselves with. Her wedding closet had bullet holes, was shot, and everything was stolen. Um, so, you know, as you can imagine, it was a very traumatic experience for everyone. It just um, shows too, doesn't it, that the, uh, how the Israelis and the IDF erased to see Palestinians in, in a less than human. For people to do that to people's personal clothing and personal items just shows the depth oh, of yeah. the way they think. And when I went back, when I went to Palestine, um, the first time I ever went, my mother still had that closet and the bullet holes were still there. And that's what made all the stories I heard all my life so real. Just seeing the bullet holes from 1967 just made everything, you know, much more real that I could actually see and feel all the stories I heard my mother telling me all my life. But she's very good at it too. She's very descriptive. Mm. So I asked my mom, you know, what made you guys come to America? My grandfather was very wealthy, he was very rich. He used to come in the 1920s, make his money and come back. And so my uncles, my mother's brothers and my father's brothers were back and forth working um, in Latin America, South America. And they were also getting their education here in America. And by the time 1968 rolled around, my mother was pregnant with her second, my sister, and there was no money and there were no jobs. Uh, the place where they camped actually was belonged to my grandfather. It's an area, it's an industrial zone called Atarot. So they had to, they were forced to walk there. And my grandfather owned 
a sort of like a granite grinding business. I know what it's called in Arabic, but I, I, I'm sure there's a term in English and I just know it in Arabic, but there were sort of like sleeping closets where the workers would sleep for the day so that they can work early the next morning. That's also where they ended up staying, but it was really nothing. It didn't have any plumbing or anything like that. And so all of that was gone. Everything was destroyed. And so there was no way to make money. So they came to America, of course, to work and make a living and in hopes of coming back. That was always the plan. My mother said that was always the plan. Any man that would come and ask for her hand that she knew was leaving or traveling abroad, she refused. She always wanted to remain in Jerusalem in Palestine. But unfortunately, that didn't happen due to the terror that my village experienced in 1967. And so that's when they ended up coming to New York and we were all born. <laughs> born in Jersey. How do you say it? We need some of the accents. Jersey, well, Jersey, I, I, we didn't leave. Oh, well, listen, uh, it's a Brooklyn accent. Everybody from Brooklyn moved to New Jersey, and that's why the accent sort of crystallized. That's my theory on it. <laughs> <laughs> so the houses in New York, of course, are small, and, and anybody that has kids and they're growing a family, they want to move out west. So they're either going to move to Long Island or New Jersey or even California. And so my parents didn't move to New Jersey. They ended up moving to California because of the climate is so much like Palestine. So my father absolutely loved it when he came to California. But of course, nothing can replace Palestine. Nothing can. So have you, have you been back, Lana? Have, have you got a Hawaii? What's your in story? So my story is, because my parents were born in Jerusalem, it's almost impossible for us to get a Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Of course, Beth Hanina has been partitioned. So you have Beth Hanina Tehka, old Beth Hanina, and Beth Hanina Jadida. That has become part of quote unquote Israel, Beth Hanina Jadida. And then with the partition, Beth Hanina Kadima would be West Bank. And so we tried and I applied when we were there and we still haven't got How long ago was that? It's, it's, well, this was like in 2000 yeah. because we, that's the first time I went back was in 1999, 2000 when things were supposedly looking up and then you, the, the second Intifada happened and I lived through that. Wow. I was going to school in Palestine during the second Intifada. So that was my first experience uh, in Palestine. So I've only experienced just living under occupation without being under attack during that summer, <laughs> the summer of 99. And then in September, when I started school, is right when the second Intifada started. And it was brutal. Where I lived, I saw a lot of people die a lot it was every day because I ended up moving in an area called Aram which a lot of people from my village own land there it's under the same government and I live very close to Columbia checkpoint so I was crossing it every day wow. so that's the main checkpoint for our listeners Columbia from East Palestine 
what is known as the West Bank into uh, historic Palestine. It's the most dangerous one, isn't it? Well, it's where the flare-ups happen, definitely. You know, yeah. you've seen images of the cattle station, sort of if you're, if you're travelling by, um, by a taxi, getting out and going through the cattle grid, you know, that tens and hundreds of Palestinians, you know, sometimes spending three, four, five hours in the baking sun trying to get through to their jobs and homes. And I did, I did the bus and um, it, was, it was bizarre to see because obviously I stayed on, in fact, I wasn't allowed off the bus, but they insisted obviously all the Palestinians get off the bus and go through all of that whole process. Uh, it was just terrific. That was something, yeah, I experienced actually the last time I was in Palestine because every time I go, it's different. And they changed Colombia a lot. And I was with my cousin who is West Bank but lives in Bethania because his wife carries the Israeli ID, the blue ID. So even though he's from Bethania and he was born there, he can live there via Tasrih. But I would drive a car and, you know, because I'm using my American visa, but every time I'd have to cross that checkpoint, I would have to drop him off and see him walk. And it just made me feel sick to my stomach, having to do that as if he was some sort of animal or less than, like, this is what they do. It's like cattle, the way they haul them through. It really is. Yeah, it, it really bothered me as much as even though I lived in Palestine throughout the Second Intifada, every time I go, I witness things like that. And I experience that and I just get sick to my stomach because it's horrible. It's very racist. Why, what difference does it make if I drove through the checkpoint with him in it? Mm. What difference does it make? Just having to drop him off and him have to walk through like cattle, as you said, and then picking him up on the other side. We should actually make it very clear, Leila. There's a reason. There's a reason the Israelis do that. And it's because mm-hmm. they want to subjugate, humiliate, oppress. But they want to create the circumstance that sees Palestinians voluntarily leave Palestine. Right. And, right. you know, this is... You know, it's a fact and it's worked so well in particular suburbs, you know, in, in Bethlehem, Bethlehem. We know that thousands and thousands of Palestinians, Christian Palestinians have had to leave Palestine, not because of what the Israelis say, radical Islam, but because the Christian Palestinians that work in Bethlehem depend on pilgrims. Well, those pilgrims are channeled through Israel into Jewish-owned stores and it, the tour operators ensure that they corral those pilgrims and make sure that they don't frequent or visit any of the Palestinian stores. They have no economy anymore. And so those Palestinians are starving and they've had to leave. Many We've got many Christian Palestinians in Australia, in fact, the world's largest Melkite population there, are in, in Sydney. They've all had to leave because they can't survive inside Israel under the oppressive apartheid laws. So I was just going to say just on that, when I was... Um... In Jerusalem, in the old city, I spoke to a few of the, the people that have been selling stuff, you know, 40 or 50 years, and they said exactly the same thing. And so I thought, you know, these guys are white, English-speaking. I'm going to try and sell some of this Palestinian stuff to them. And so I went over to, you know, the groups, and they all had a list that they had to look at where they said, no, we can't buy from that one. And it was exactly that reason, and it is absolutely crippling them. And it's, that is just disgusting that that's actually happening. So it's, it's all part of a plan. Let's not forget, I mean, whether it's Plan Delet, which, you know, was the Irgun Stern Haganah 
the terrorist organizations that precursed the terrorist group, the IDF, IOF, Plan Dalit, which was part of the original Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, identified villages, identified leaders, identified traitors within those villages and exactly which village needed to be surrounded, who needed to be killed because they were a leader and somebody charismatic that might put up some resistance. The you know, villages that were in the north were surrounded from the south, east and west so that the residents went north uh, and so forth and so forth. And they were all, all told about Deir Yassin. I mean, this is one of the things yeah. about Deir Yassin. It's only a week since we commemorated the 74th anniversary of that horrible massacre. One of the things that they did, uh, the Zionist militias did in Deir Yassin was to leave enough people alive they brutalized and butchered babies and cut open the wombs of pregnant women. But they also left people alive and sent some north, some south, some east, and told them, tell the villagers that you get to that we're on our way. And if they're there, the same is going to happen to them. And when we talk about Nakba in that context, this is why the Palestinians fled, because there was a ravages, racist, uncontrolled militia that was coming to kill them. And it, when you go from 1948 to 1967, we talk about the Nuxa, the setback, 19 years later, those visions, the very reality of Nakba was alive in your grandfather, Layla, and for your father would have been very real for your father. All those stories were still first generation. And last year in May, when we saw the expulsions of the Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, the Muhammad al-Kurdan, et cetera, those families, we know what a Nakba looks like. Now, mm. Palestinians are not going to let that happen again. No, certainly not. And as you mentioned, that's something my mother has mentioned many times, is Deir Yassin. Just the fear of what happened. It was, in, it was in everyone's minds. And so she mentioned, we thought that this is what's going to happen. Because just like you said, that's what everyone talked about. And everyone was in fear. Well, we know, we know it's a truth, you know, whether it's Kana, whether it's, you know, I mean, Ariel Sharon was still very much in charge between him and Diane, two war criminals, both rotting in hell now, um, whether it's Sabra and Shatila, whether it's, you know, any of the innumerable massacres, Jenin in 2002, Jenin this week, I mean, they've killed 10 people this week. Horrible. Uh, there's no end to the inhumanity that the occupation puts on the Palestinians. And one of the challenges, and I'm sure it's the same, I wouldn't mind you speaking to this point, Leila. One of the things that we hear in the Western media here in Australia is, you know, a, a rise in tension or the conflict has um, surged again, this sort of stuff, as if occupation isn't violence, as if when they haven't killed one of our people, that it isn't just violent, that checkpoints aren't violent, that searches aren't violent, that tear gas isn't violent, that curfews aren't violent that the denial of your right to go home isn't violent. And suddenly West's media is concerned and they go, there's an increase in violence. Right. And they forget that it, according to international law, any country that's occupied by a brutal military occupation, the people can resist with arms. And that's never mentioned in the media. I recently got banned off of Facebook for 30 days because under a Haaretz post, they called Palestinians terrorists after the Tel Aviv operation. And I wrote, I simply wrote, Israelis are the terrorists. They've been occupying Palestine all this time. And I got banned for it and I couldn't appeal. Yeah. And my Instagram has, I've been completely banned 
for years from Instagram. I've tried numerous times under different accounts, different IPs, you name it, and I still can't get on. And in fact, it was, I believe it was after we met Robert, it was the, after that time in DC, I was banned off of Instagram oh, and I've been silenced. Yeah, there were, there were pictures that I posted of that went viral uh, during that march, yeah. that Alauda anti-APAC march yeah. that they have every year. And they went viral. And um, one of them was of Rich Siegel, I'm sure you know. Yeah. And he's, he's a Jew, he's a, good, a Jewish, yeah. good guy. Yeah. And he's wearing my shirt. I make shirts on their Palestine Freedom Project. I should have put mine on. And he's carrying, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you should have. Yeah. You have I one. do have one. You know how he carries the sign that says "I'm a Jew." Da 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 da. Yes. Yep. And and I I posted a video of him and it went viral. It went and I had even Gigi Hadid and Bella Hadid's um, aunt uh, Linda Hadid and I had some celebrities on my following me or yeah. reposting at that time, and then all of a sudden fourteen. 14.5 followers gone. I was completely banned. Yeah. There was nothing I can do about it. And, you know, at that time when I was getting banned and uh, people would say, just make a new account. I think I was one of the first to experience be getting banned and not being able to recreate a new one yeah. because they follow like a fraud system. Like just if, if any company has a fraud department it's in the same way the way for a fraudster they detect fraudsters is in the same way they do with us palestinians yeah, we're basically on a list yeah so Lena, tell us about your t-shirts so i created palestine freedom project while i was in university and first it was a student organization and then when i graduated i started selling them and all of the money went to Palestinians, anything I would, you know, raise awareness, I would um, bring people to speak on behalf of Palestine in my community for the school, um, numerous things like protests, we would, so all of the, the money would go towards that. And um, then I went to Greece. And, you know, during the time of you know, we still have the refugee crisis, the Syrian refugee crisis. And I raised money by selling my shirts to help whatever refugee I could help. And I actually thought I would be helping Syrian refugees. But surprisingly, I, the first refugees that I met happened to be Palestinian. Even though when I went to Greece, I did not expect to be helping Palestinian refugees. I went there to help the Syrian refugees or any refugees. I, I, I did not expect to encounter Palestinian refugees. And these are refugees from 1948, third generation. And it was just so insane. And, and, and it was so wild. And I, and I got to sneak in to the refugee camps because there was a time where they weren't allowing anybody to go in. And, you know, I met a couple of families that I helped out and 
by selling my t-shirts that went towards the refugees all of it and some of my own money of course gave them food clothing anything that they needed uh, amazing lady you did that and to find that you took money from the united states from your um, t-shirt enterprise to go help just refugees and you find in fact you're helping palestinians who very many of them probably went 4867 syria Mm-hmm. Being internally displaced in Syria a couple of times, and then following the devastation of Yarmouk, found themselves now in Greece. So, you know, in in the matter of four or five, six decades, have been uprooted and moved five or six or seven times. I mean, the tragedy of our Palestinian refugee uh, situation knows no end. The good thing, though, later, the good thing is that they've denied you the right to return. They've denied me the right to return, but they haven't been able to extinguish. our desire to return and that fire burns brighter in us every day yes it does i don't think there's a better way for us to finish the show than on that inspirational note layla thank you so very much for joining us and inshallah we can get you back again thank you so much for having me it was nice meeting you and it was nice seeing you again robert great to catch up don't be a stranger great to catch up that was layla d from the united states a palestinian like myself refugee denied her right to return a fantastic guest I'm sure you'll agree share the podcast tell your friends and remember there's never been a better time for a free palestine